Richard Gamble, barber and parrotmaker of Williamsburg in the middle years of the 18th century, appears to have remained a bachelor all his life. Other than this he seems to have been no more improvident than the average craftsman of his time. That is to say, he came, or was brought, into court with startling frequency in an endless round of suits to collect unpaid debts. He was in good company. Going to the law was part of the colonial way of life in Virginia, and everyone from a town's least citizen to the colony's greatest planter engaged in it. In fact, suing and being sued had some of the aspects of a game. The plaintiff in one case might shortly be defendant in another and witness in a third, and keep right on doing business with the other parties in all three cases. Alexander Finney, co-defendant with Gamble in at least one large suit for debt, perhaps the one that led to Gamble's arrest, was himself a wigmaker who had abandoned the craft for the arduous pleasures of innkeeping. He was proprietor at the time of the Raleigh Tavern, Williamsburg's largest and most famous hostelry. When Gamble died, Edward Charlton, late from London, succeeded to the business and became in time Williamsburg's leading barber and wigmaker. His livelihood, as perhaps he foresaw, was already doomed when he retired from business shortly before the revolution, the wig fashion was on the way out in England and would soon be dropped in America. And in any case his former clientele would vanish from the streets of Williamsburg when the capital of Virginia was moved to Richmond in 1780. Charlton, Gamble, and Finney were only three of some thirty men concerned with barbering and wig-making in 18th-century Williamsburg. Once or twice between 1700 and 1780 the town apparently had to struggle along for short periods with but a single active practitioner of the craft. Usually there were at least two or three, and for a time in 1769, as many as eight plied their trade in the little capital city. The trouble with hair is that it persists in growing, and every once in a while something must be done about it. Over the millennia since time began, or at least since people began, that something has been manifold in variety, dyeing, bleaching, oiling, powdering, pomading, trimming, curling, straightening, shaving off completely, or augmenting with hair from horses, cows, goats, and from other human heads. Shaving the face was not customary among the ancient Greeks until Alexander the Great ordered his soldiers to doff their beards lest the enemy use them as a convenient handle in close combat. Thereupon the Grecian tonsorial parlor, known as a tonstrina, added shaving to its previous services of trimming and dressing the hair and beard, massage, first aid, and minor surgery. Roman barbers, the word comes from the Latin. Barba, for beard, followed the example of their Greek colleagues when the beard passed out of favor during the Republic. The classic reply of the Roman general Archelaus rings true even today. Asked by a talkative barber how he would like to be trimmed, Archelaus answered, according to Plutarch, in silence. From the onslaught of the barbarians, a word that comes not from Barba, but from the Greek, barbaros, meaning strange or rude, until about the 13th century, the craft of barbering probably reverted in most of Europe to its elementary procedures of trimming and dressing the hair and beard. In the latter century the first guilds of barbers were formed in both France and England, 
and by the 17th century the golden age of the barber had begun. For most of the 17th and 18th centuries in Europe an inordinate emphasis on appearance led to excesses of fashion in both costume and hairdress. Men followed the vagaries of high fashion as faithfully as women and vied with each other in wearing long curls of their own or somebody else's hair. The wearing of wigs, at least for special purposes, was of ancient origin. Wigs have been found on Egyptian mummies, Greek actors wore wigs on stage, fashionable ladies of Rome and Carthage were much addicted to false hair, especially golden locks from Teuton heads. But the widespread wearing of perukes as an everyday article of costume is generally held to date from 1624, when Louis XIII adopted the usage. Here it needs to be said, perhaps, that wig and peruke are not different styles, but different forms of the same word. The French, peruke, spelled, peruke, in England and the colonies, had gone through an earlier series of English transformations, from, perwike, to, perwick, to, periwig, and then by abbreviation to, wig. Although Louis XIV disdained wigs until his abundant natural hair began to fall out, the fashion flourished at his court, and was brought over to England by the restored Charles II, who began in 1663 to affect a large black wig. Charles may have been the first English king to adopt the custom, but it is said that Elizabeth I owned some eighty auburn, orange, and gold wigs to cover her thinning hair. Just as Louis XII's courtiers hastened to don wigs as soon as their monarch did, so aspiring ladies, and gentlemen of Restoration England emulated their king. Samuel Pepys recorded that his wife first acquired a pair of perukes of hair, as the fashion now is for ladies to wear, which are pretty, and are of my wife's own hair, or else I should not endure them. Then, after great hesitation, he bought a periwig for himself, and had his hair cut off and made into another. Pepys's final word on the subject was to wonder what will be the fashion after the plague is done, as to periwigs, for nobody will dare to buy any hair, for fear of the infection, that it had been cut off the heads of people dead of the plague. He need not have been concerned on that score, the fashion throve better after the plague than before, attaining its greatest development under Queen and when the long curls of men's full-bottomed wigs covered the back and shoulders and floated down over the chest. In France, according to Diderot's Encyclopedia, published 1751-1772, late 17th century, perukes were so long and so much adorned that they commonly weighed as much as two pounds and cost more than one thousand. Ecus silver coins about the size of a dollar. Milady's hairdress reached even more preposterous extremes in the many-tiered and bejeweled fontanges of Louis XIV's court, an exaggeration he disapproved in vain, about 1700. After a period of some moderation the style reappeared in the yard high heads dictated to fashion by Marie Antoinette before she lost hers. If English and colonial women did not go to the extreme, they nevertheless followed the style. A letter to the New York Journal or General Advertiser in 1767 complained that it is now the mode to make the ladies' head of twice the natural size, by means of artificial pads, bolsters, or rolls which, the writer had on good authority, 
came from hospital patients dead of the smallpox and of a distemper still more disagreeable. The shop that Richard Gamble entrusted to his new partner in 1752 stood next door to the Raleigh Tavern, in what was sometimes called the most public part of the city. Certainly no better location in Williamsburg could have been found for a barber shop than on the Duke of Gloucester Street in the block nearest the capital. Contemporary accounts indicate that the artist did not greatly exaggerate either the size or the composition of the headdresses affected by fashionable ladies in the capitals of Europe. Colonial women seem not to have dressed their hair in such heights of fashion. The broad main street of Williamsburg, muddy or dusty as the season decreed, stretched westward from the capital nearly a mile to the College of William and Mary. During most of the year it saw only the normal activity of a small colonial town. But several times each year, when the courts and perhaps the assembly met, the town's population doubled or tripled. These public times were almost field days of litigation, commercial negotiation, and merrymaking. Then it was that innkeepers and craftsmen lucky enough to have located in that first block knew how fortunate they were. One small shop also near the Raleigh had been a barbering and wig-making establishment at least since John Peter Wagnon bought it in 1734. It remained so through the long ownership of Wagnon's one-time apprentice, Andrew Anderson, and the short occupancy of two successor barbers and wig-makers, William Peake of Yorktown and James Curry. Across the street from the Raleigh had stood the shop of Jean Pasteur, one of Williamsburg's first known wigmakers. Somewhere nearby Alexander Finney made wigs before moving to the Raleigh itself, and Anthony G. O'Hegan did so later, perhaps in the same shop. A little farther uptown William Peake had briefly set up business as a barber in Mr. Dunn's Crown Tavern, opposite the printing office. James Nichols first opened his shop in the corner room of the brick house where Mrs. Singleton lives, now better known as the Brick House Tavern. And somewhere along the same crowded street Richard Charlton, who was somehow related to Edward and had at least a passing acquaintance with wig-making, kept his well-patronized tavern. Other craftsmen also located in the same neighborhood. Not far beyond the Raleigh hung the sign of James Craig's jewelry, watch, and silversmith shop, the Golden Ball and next to it was the millinery store of the sisters Margaret and Jane Hunter, the latter of whom married her neighbor Edward Charlton. The size of Edward Charlton's barber and wig shop is now unknown. For some time it was probably no larger than a front room of the house he owned opposite the Raleigh. Andrew Anderson's shop was in a building 16 feet square. The barber shop next to the King's Arms Tavern is shown on later insurance papers to have been 16 by 20 feet, and these are the approximate dimensions of the restored barber and parrotmaker's shop. The restored shop of the barber and parrotmaker in Williamsburg. It stands on Duke of Gloucester Street next to the King's Arms Tavern and across from the Raleigh Tavern. In dimensions, appearance, and equipment it is believed to resemble quite closely a shop that stood on the site about 1770 and may have been occupied successively by the partnerships of Geohegan and Brazier and of Charlton and Nichols.